That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. I am literally recording this after my 28 straight hours on TV for the ESPN Fantasy Football Marathon. Michael Jr. and I were on Fantasy Island. Well, we actually were on our way to Fantasy Island for most of it. We went to jail. We rode in a hot air balloon. We swam with dolphins. We went to a luau. We were on a boat. We were in a plane. We were in a car for a while. Saw some of the many landmarks of Illinois, like the giant ketchup bottle and the giant rocking chair, giant Abe Lincoln. We basically made our way from my palatial manse in Chicago all the way through Route 66 across the country to Vegas, to Alaska, finally to Fantasy Island. This, of course, all in ridiculous costumes in front of a green screen. And I woke up on Monday at 10 a.m., got three and a half hours total sleep between then and now, which is Tuesday at midnight. That is a very long time to be awake, and yet I feel okay. I'm sure tomorrow it's going to hit me like a ton of bricks. But the exact opposite of what I just did for Fantasy Island, which was act like a complete idiot in absurd costumes uh, for a laugh, uh, is what I'm doing now in this podcast with Wayne Drays, which is have an incredibly interesting and insightful conversation about journalism, long-form writing, best practices, and how Wayne has covered some really, really difficult stories. So... I guess I'm trying to say that I could do it all, ladies and gentlemen, and also that I am incredibly sleep-deprived and having trouble forming my sentences and putting together a good intro for this particular podcast. But I'll tell you what, it's worth listening to. Wayne is a fantastic guy, an incredible writer, and he has such an interesting story. Loved this conversation with him. So no outro, not much of an intro, just me and Wayne chatting for a while about a bunch of great stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. That's what she said. More that's what she said in just a second. But first, I want to hear from you. Whether this is your first time listening or you've been listening for a while, let me know how I'm doing. Tell me who you want to hear from, what guests would be great. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain on Twitter and let me know. You can always leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That's super helpful to me. Helps bump up the interest in my podcast if you leave a rating and a review. And if you like what you hear, make sure you're subscribed so that I'm easy to find the next time you're looking. If you subscribe on the ESPN app, uh, you can even get an alert whenever there's a new episode. So tell me what you think, guys. We'd love to hear from you. That's what she said. Happy to welcome in Wayne Dre's 17-year veteran of the mothership, ESPN senior writer for ESPNTheMagin.com, E60, outside the lines participant, uh, the guy who writes the long stuff that you read, for the most part, including some profiles on some big names that we'll get into. Um, but thanks for making time. And in studio. You're only my second in-studio podcast guest. Who's the other one? Um... One of the guys who created Cards Against Humanity. Wow. Which was one of my favorite interviews. If you're listening to the pod and you're a late comer, that was pretty early on. Fascinating guy. Those are big shoes to fill. Yeah. Well, and they do some really cool, I don't know how like into that game you are, but the, the money that they've made, they use it for the coolest things. They'll do these really weird campaigns, like they had one where you could order a box of BS and people thought it was going to actually be something oh, that I was actually that. a box of bullshit yeah, 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 and they yeah. donate money to great campaigns and they bought an island and named it hawaii too off the coast <laughs> of maine just to preserve it like anyways really really cool guy to talk to um but yeah you're the second in person and um 
I want to start with where you came from. Like, what did you want to be as a kid? I love the process of people becoming who they are. So, so I wanted to be a uh, professional baseball player uh-huh. um, and then a professional basketball player. And I realized pretty early on that neither one of those was going to happen. Which one was closer? Uh, baseball. I was a pretty good Little League pitcher. Um, my uh, athletic claim to fame is I once uh, struck out 15 kids in a six-inning game. Nice. Now, the first batter, I did hit him in the hands and break <laughs> four of his fingers. So the rest of the kids went up there. The rest of the game scared out of their mind. Perfect. But it's just a little a small just footnote. establishing yeah, dominance. Yeah, exactly. I wanted the inside <laughs> of the plate at 11 years old. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, so, but what happened then is, you know, I remember uh, my parents, my dad especially, would always read the paper every morning. And it was like, leave me alone, I'm reading the paper. So I was like the uh, frustrated kid who wanted his parents' attention, and it was like, okay, I'm going to go do that um, so I can uh, you know, get the attention of people, basically. And then I remember when I was in high school, my, my, neither one of my parents were writers or anything like that. It's not, you know, when my dad would do business work, I would be the one to help him with the it's and it's and there and yeah. there. Um, so it's not in our family, but, but what happened was, I, you know, I wrote a paper uh, an article, sophomore year of high school for our um, school paper. This is great. And I thought it was the greatest thing ever. It was like about the sophomore football team, whatever it was. And I gave it to the you know teacher who was running the paper, and I stuck my chest out like, this is the greatest thing you're ever going to see. And he, uh, a few days later, brought it to our class, to our English class, covered in red ink, oh. and basically said, this is an example of how you don't write. Like, like just completely it destroyed unnecessarily it. harsh it was and yet i <laughs> said it worked because i sat in the corner of the room and i was kind of like okay screw you old man yeah like i'm gonna prove you wrong but what was his goal i don't really know i i mean he, he was sort of uh he was sort of a, a, a grumpy guy yeah. i guess um and maybe his goal was to sort of right. light a fire in me it worked did you have an attitude maybe that he thought that you maybe were- i might have i might have um and then i was just and then literally i mean i was hell bent on proving this guy wrong and so, uh, you know, I started writing for the paper and writing good things, and, and the whole thing sort of snowballed. Um, the other entertaining story, I went to the University of Iowa, and when I went there, I didn't know if I wanted to be a journalist or a teacher. And so I was in the pre-education program at Iowa my freshman year. Uh, first semester, I get a 1.67 GPA. It's hard to balance, like, the paper and class and, like, you know, hanging out with your friends. And so I literally, I got a letter from You're the university. You're telling this to someone who, like, skipped two classes in four years as a Division One athlete oh, in no. the Ivy League because nope. I was a nerd. No, I, I skipped You're two. tough to balance. I also didn't drink till my junior year, though, so I yeah. think that was a real help in me showing up to class and getting good grades. I may have skipped two classes the first week. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. But, but I got this letter. You're about balance. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah, is, yeah. Uh, when, when we dig a little deeper, we realize the balance was the classes were really getting in the way of the party. Yes. Um, <laughs> and this letter basically said, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, but it essentially said, you're going to go nowhere near America's youth. You can't be a teacher. Basically, like, you're out of this pre-education program. Right. And so well, I was like, well, if you well, can't devote yourself to it, they figure this might exactly, be the career exactly. for you. Like, <laughs> so I was like, well, I guess I'll be a journalist. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so that's what I did. And, and, and then I, you know, I got the grades fixed, and I learned to balance my time better, and I went to all my classes. And Were you more motivated, do you think? Do you think part of it was more of an interest in the journalism when yes, you switched? Yes, I think so. I think so. Sometimes that's really what it is for people. Yeah. It's not that they're inherently lazy or don't have no. ambition. They just aren't passionate about whatever you've set totally, them in front of. Totally, totally. And then I just became super, super passionate about it. And then I remember, you know, I met somebody, you know, in Iowa from, I want to say, like the Cedar Rapids Gazette or one of the papers, their editors came through and met with a bunch of, of our students. And I remember the woman said that, you know, they don't hire anybody 
who get straight A's because it means they're not working enough at the paper. It means they're doing too much on, on schoolwork. And I'm like, this is totally the profession for me. But that's really dumb, too. I, 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 I would agree with that. But I was like, this is good. Right. Um, and so then it all sort of worked out. And then, you know, here I am, whatever it was, four or five years ago. You know, I got uh, whatever. They put me in, like, the Alumni Hall of Fame in nice. Iowa. And I told this exact same story yeah. about my GPA in front of the university president. And my wife said, I can't believe you told that story. Yeah, no, I, I love like, that. Yeah. Like, honestly, it's, it's funny because um, actually more recently in doing the pod when I talk to people about their process, um, I remember that I need to involve failure or slip-ups because I think when we get to certain levels of success, it's very easy for us to remember the pivot points where things started to work out well. And sometimes we acknowledge the things that happened before that or the, the pitfalls, but not often enough. And then people coming up, when they falter yep. or they don't have immediate success, kind of give up because yep. they, they're so used to hearing people's stories of success. So it's useful yep. to go into places like that and tell students, hey, guess what? I didn't have my shit together, but it's okay. For sure. You can find it. Um, For sure. Really quickly, going back to that high school teacher, when you got better and you wrote more, uh-huh. did you have a... a like, did you have a meeting of the minds where he acknowledged that you were getting better and that you were no longer a disgrace to the idea of journalism? Yes, absolutely. And the funny thing is, you know, with the success I've had in my career, you know, he goes on and tells all these stories in his classes about, you know, that's where Wayne used to sit and yeah. blah, blah, blah. He's and responsible for absolutely. your success. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we became good <laughs> friends. I mean, it's great. And, and truthfully, I mean, that lit a huge fire in right. me. It, it, it worked. But, yeah, he... Uh, he flies the flag for Wayne now, yeah. I guess, from what I've been told. I like that when people who maybe aren't always the best supporters, once you start doing great, are very quick to take credit. Not that I have any of that in my past. Story Never. for another time. Um, so when did you stop playing sports? Um, I mean, like competitively, I still, you know, cycle or play basketball. Um, you know, I coach my daughter's softball team. I stay pretty active in terms of like – As a kid, as a kid, you know, in baseball, I ran into a a bad coach that I didn't really get along with. Um, Total typical, like, uh, you know, kids on the team, and he just rubbed me the wrong way. And he, you know, in many ways kind of ruined baseball for me. This was in high school? uh, This was, I want to say, like, eighth grade maybe. And so I stopped playing the next year because of him. Mm -hmm. And to this day, to this day, one of the biggest regrets that I let, you know, one person – kind of hurt this uh for me and then football my dad played football at kent state um he was a lineman on the team where lou holtz was there and he's tell some great lou holtz stories about them uh making fun of him and stuff but (laughs) but um so i try to play football kind of like i'll fill my dad's shoes football is so not for me yeah uh i hated tackling drills yeah but you're not beefy no exactly and they wanted me to be like a tight end and i just i I didn't like it so i played No, not at all. <laughs> I played a half a year and I bailed. I quit in the middle of the season, oh. and uh, my dad Where was pretty upset about. Yeah. He was not happy. His whole thing, and he, he's right. I mean, looking back on it now, he's like, you know, we see things through. We don't, we don't quit on mm-hmm. in the middle of the year. Um, but I remember there was, there was a day when, when like me and like six friends, you know, like an early dismissal, ditched practice and went to my house and like played basketball all day, and it was so fun. We we're like, oh my gosh, like let's, let's do, do this. this. Yeah, right. this is way better right. than going to practice. So what did your parents do for a living? So my dad um, owned his own soap company. Basically, they sold, like, detergents and uh, to, like, laundry, uh, like, hospitals, restaurants, things like that. And then my mom um, was, like, an administrative assistant. So why do you think that you got the itch so early in high school to be a journalist? 
Is it curiosity? Is it the sport that your dad was into and wanted to connect with him on that because you read the paper? Yeah. I think it was partially that. I think um, I also found out, I mean, that I, for some strange reason, had a little bit of writing talent. Right. It was something I was good at. Um, I'm always super curious. And back then, I remember thinking to myself, I was fascinated by athletes. And the older I've gotten, I've realized, and I'm sure you know this, Sarah, that like, what makes a world-class elite athlete is not always talent. There are tons of talented people out there. It's what's between the ears. And so I was always fascinated to find out you know, what it was about this individual's makeup, whether it's a kid in high school or an NBA all-star or a race car driver or whatever. Why is it, what it was it in their past or whatever that pushed them to, to achieve this greatness that others along the way, you know, failed, couldn't do right. it. And I've always, even to this day, like that's kind of what drives me in my stories is figuring out, you know, people and why they've gotten to the point that they are, that they're at. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I think we so often try to find connective tissue between every athlete that these are the qualities that you see in all great athletes. And sometimes that's the case. But more often than not, I would imagine as you're doing profiles of these different people, what you're finding is their motivation is very different, their achievement is very different, the way they came about discovering their talent and using it. You know, for some people, like the Jordans of the world, it's competition. That's it. That is why they're going to win, is they are going to win because they are going to outcompete everybody. And then there's people that don't even seem that competitive. But for whatever reason, they're driven by something else. And I guess discovering that would be a very cool part of your job, is to separate them from the cliches that we associate with all athletes. The one, one thing that I've found with a lot of athletes, a lot of them have dad issues. A lot. Something Male, female, they're trying, their dad was hard on them. They're trying to prove their dad wrong. I mean, whatever the case may be, a lot of athletes have that. I mean, the piece I did on Michael Phelps, I think of Wright Thompson's piece mm-hmm. with Tiger Woods. You go down the list. I just wrote about Lewis Hamilton a couple months ago. He had issues with his dad. Like, there's all, there almost, almost always seems to be some sort of a dad story Gosh, with so a lot of athletes. it's my dad's fault that I never made it past Division One. Totally. He was too nice. He was. He should have been, he should have been crazier. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, my parents don't really care about sports, so that, I didn't have anybody pushing me. They were like, this is fine. You seem good at this. Keep going. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about how you transitioned from Iowa. What was your first job outside of school? So uh, ESPN. What a dick. I know. Every, all right, everybody listening, feel free to turn off because all, the, fr- all the people that message me and say, I'm just out of college, I'm three years out, I'm five years out, I can't get the job, and I'm like, keep yeah. at it, it takes a long time. Yes. And then here comes you. Yes. I, uh, Mr. 1.67 GPA. I sent a cover letter and clips and resume to probably about 130 places. Every newspaper, magazine, and at that point, like starting website I could think of. And did you remember to change the name in each single one? Because I, I did not once. I did. But <laughs> and they the, responded, just to let you know, this is a great resume, but you forgot to change yeah, the name at the top. <laughs> my big mistake was I misspelled Bill Dwyer's name, the sports Ooh. editor of the LA Times. And he wrote me a letter that basically said, uh, you misspelled my name and you will not work at the LA Times. <laughs> and I was well, like... Well, I, mean, I don't blame you. Like, exactly. I mean, that's pretty much spot on. Yeah. So, uh, Attention to detail. Need yeah. Some work. Yeah. But out of all those, I mean, I remember like putting those clips together in an envelope and going to the post office in Iowa City with this big box and like being all excited and waiting for everybody to come and knock on my door. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, let's say it was 150 packages. There were 147 no's. And, uh, you know, I interviewed the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, the Dallas Morning News where I had interned, and then ESPN. 
And when I met with the when I met with the guy at ESPN, it was pretty funny. We met at a hotel here in Chicago and went through this whole interview. And uh, I remember at the end of the interview, he said to me, do you have any questions for me? Well, being the uh, you know, overprepared, studious person I am, I had gone to the University of Iowa like in-house website, tips for your interview. And I had downloaded and printed out. Old school thing where you have to turn the... What was that called? The what? Remember that old school thing where it was old newspapers and you had to turn the wheel? Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. What the hell was that uh, called? I know what you mean. Like when you go to the library. Yeah, like, that yeah, was like yeah, the yeah, way yeah. you had to go out and yeah, like yeah. look at old newspapers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm just picturing you there scrolling through yeah. like in the movies when they're yeah, looking yeah. for like stories about an yeah. old murderer. Uh-huh. I picture you doing that, looking for deets on your future But I was excited. Employers. and So I printed out this sheet of like questions you should ask your future employer. Oh, and boy. so when the guy said, do you have questions? I said, I sure do. And I opened my <laughs> folder and I was all excited. And I looked and I said, question number one, why should I work for your company? So I said, oh, number one. I said, sir, I go, why should I work for your company? And he looked at me like I was, like I was blue. And he's right. like, um... It's friggin' ESPN. Yeah. He's like, what's wrong with Worldwide you? Worldwide leader. And he goes, he like basically went off, right? Yeah. And I'm like, okay. He's like, do you have any other questions? I was like, nope. And I closed <laughs> my folder and like put it in my bag. And so, uh, and so then my dad, so I called my dad and I drive home and he said, you know, how did it go? And I said, well, I go, uh, I go, dad, I, I told him a story. I said, you know, the, you know, the guy like, you know, he swore in the interview, you know, he was really kind of like, yeah, you know, o- overly uh, fired up. Yeah. My dad goes, no, no, no. He goes, that's the exact kind of guy you want to work for. And so, uh, and so I waited for this offer, and I was kind of stringing along the, the morning news and the other places. And then finally, I think it was like the morning of July 4th, of all things, like Disney HR called, and they gave me this offer, and it was more money than I ever in a million years imagined yeah. I would make. Um, and that was it. So I packed the car and you know, went with my, my then girlfriend, now wife, and we moved to, to Connecticut. Microfiche. Is what I was saying. Yes, totally, totally, totally. Yeah. Good um, on you. So, did you meet your girlfriend, your wife in college? Yes, she was a copy editor at the paper. Oh, that's um, so Gilmore Girls. Yes, yeah. she was a copy editor, and she could not stand the uh, sports guys who thought they <laughs> ran the office and would come in like it was their show. And uh, and yeah, and now I mean, including you, including me, I was totally <laughs> one of those jerks. Yeah. Um, that's so okay. So you drive to Bristol. Yeah. And. Um, what is that job, the first job you get? So originally they wanted me to do what was called team pages, which is basically like the early days of aggregating. Right. Um, and when they started reading my stuff, they're like, look, they're like, we think, you know, you can be a writer. And the editor at the time said, I'm going to throw you into the deep end and you're going to sink or swim. We're going to find out real fast if you can do this. And I was like, okay. And I remember, you know, my first stories I did, I did a profile of, uh, the Michigan quarterback at the time, oh, was it Drew? Why can't I remember Drew uh, uh, Hanson? Not Drew Hanson. Oh, the guy who played baseball for the Yankees, Henson. Henson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I did a piece on him, and then the the first big story I did was on the whatever it was at the time, twenty year anniversary or whatever it was of the Marshall plane crash, mm. and it was before We Are Marshall came out. Yeah. And so I found a bunch of people and told these real sort of like emotional stories about that whole thing. And, you know, my editor at the time said to me that he at some point along the way had met the guy who wrote the movie. And apparently, I don't know how much I believe him, he kind of tells stories, but apparently the the writer of the movie had seen our stories and said we should make that a movie. And it kind of inspired him to I mean, it doesn't mean it's any money in my pocketbook, right, exactly. but it's a pretty good, pretty it's cool a story. In your cap. Yeah, no and so and so that was it. And then I remember, you know, like a couple years later at ESPN, a year or two, I was there, 
somebody said to me, one of my really good friends said, look, you know, you've got a lot of talent, but you need to figure out what you want to do. You can't just keep jumping around and telling these stories. Like, you need to be like, do why, you want, Why were ahead. you jumping around? Well, I was just, I didn't were have a beat. different departments? I didn't have a just, beat. So okay. I would jump around and I'd, you know, I'd go to a Tennessee, Florida football game and then I'd write about this or, you know, I'd, you know, I, 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 I right. jumped in everything. And back then, we didn't have that many writers. You know, I mean, Clayton was there. Jason Stark was there. Andy Katz. Um, you know, Brian Shackman was, was writing in the NHL. That was really about it. And so Tom Ferry was there. And so, you know, they were saying to me, like, you need to pick a sport and go be an expert right. in, in that sport. And I was like, I don't really want to do that. I just want to tell great stories. I'm like, well, you can't do that. Well, now, you know, whatever, 15 years later, You're still doing that's it. still what I do. Right. So I'm, I, I just had Ramona Shelburne on last week. Yep. And I, I'm fascinated because I took such an um, unusual route to this job. I didn't go to journalism school. I was not a even I was an English major, but Cornell, I took one writing for magazines class, and I wrote a couple things for the newspaper. It was never my initial goal, so I came around it in a different way, and I consider myself an entertainer who sometimes acts as a journalist. So I don't know a lot of, like, the process. Uh-huh. Everything's trial by fire, including when I write a long-form piece and I get sent somewhere. I'm like, what am I supposed to I guess right. I'll talk to people and see what happens. Um, how do you learn that? Did you do enough of that in college that – your very first stories about Drew Henson or about the Marshall, you get sent somewhere with a budget and a, an assignment, and you know exactly how to go about story arcing and talking to the right people and all of that? No. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, it, it was trial by fire. And, and I will say to you that even now, after doing this, you know, quote-unquote professionally for 17 years, um, writing sucks. It's really, really hard. Yeah, the hard. best part about writing is having written. Yes, I mean, like people say all the time, like, you know, what are the secrets? How do you pe- people have no idea the amount of time that you, you know, sweat and bleed over over sentences yeah. and pace and rhythm. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you read it, you, you have no, no, you know, no, when it's good. Yes, absolutely. You know, I'll, and I'll talk to like, you know, Wright Thompson about that. And he'll be like, well, you know, I wrote this in like a few hours and I want to like throw him off a bridge. Yeah. I'm like, dude, that's not normal. not normal. And I tell, you know, students that reach out to me all the time. This this is a really really hard, painful, lonely, uh, lonely profession, and, and you know it's not like I've got an hour and a half today, so I have to fit writing this hour and a half. You have to be in the right frame of mind. You have to like catch that rhythm, yep. and at the same time, when it catches, it's great. That's it, and and yeah. it's like I'm sorry that you know the kids need to be picked up at school or whatever's <laughs> going on, yeah. but like I found it. I got the, legs. Yeah, like Walk I'm kids. I'm in the I'm in the <laughs> mode, you know. So I'll like say to the wife, like I'm not gonna be home for dinner. I'm rocking yeah. and rolling. I'll see you like late tonight. Right. Um, it's hard, and nobody nobody tells you how to do it. You know, we, we get once in a while we get together all the long form writers and we'll have these sort of meetings and we share ideas and stories. But it's but writing's a very, very personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you and I, Sarah, can go to the same event and talk to the same people and get the same exact quotes, but what we see and how it filters through each of our lenses is completely different. Right. And and that voice is what makes it unique. That's what you bring, you know, your individuality to each piece. So it's it's hard. I wish there would have been you know, I mean, I did the best I could to learn back then, but I read those stories like in college, and they were atrocious, right. and they were really bad. So I'm sure they weren't that bad. But yeah, Wright Thompson, you bring him up. He's an interesting one because I think I remember reading a piece of his where he talked about process, a really long, in-depth look at his process, and I felt like, oh, well, that's why I'm not 
a full-time writer. I like writing. I do it. But I also like the fact that I don't only do it. Yeah. I like to do radio and TV and writing. They all have the things that I like about them, and they all split it up. If I was writing full-time, I would break my head against the keyboard. Um, but when I do it and I get in the groove, I'm so happy to have done it. And when I have those pieces that I can send out, there's a permanency to it that isn't there, permanence to it that isn't there with radio where I have to go back and find a clip and if someone says, what did you think about this? Well, go to 305 in hour two of this date of this thing. Um, But when I was reading Wright's piece, I thought, does everybody do it with that much structure? It felt as though he really had an outline and a structure for every every time he sat down, which I don't at all. Do you do that? So I do now. For a long time, I would just sit down and write. And, as, and then move things around. Yes, yeah. and as I was meandering through the piece, I'd sort of discover my way, if yeah. you will. Now, Your thesis, basically. Yeah. What's my point? Right. Now, for the last probably four or five years, I really make a point to sit down before I write and say, okay, here's all my notes. Here's what I have. Um, here's what the point of my story is. And then I divide everything down into, like, sections. So, like, if you take, like, you know, the Michael Phelps story I did last summer, you know, it's like, okay, like, let's explain – you know, what he did that was great. Let's explain his childhood relationship with his dad. Where did it go wrong? And everything that I have in my notes that speaks to that from all the different subjects will kind of go either on an index card or on its own file on my right. computer. And then I'll sit there and just basically write what I would call like mini individual stories on, in each of those topics. The key being you want to get you want to have the beginning and the end of those sections grab the reader and keep them you know coming along. You give them kind of the vegetables in the middle, right? And then you string all that together and at then the end. Connectors and or, then exactly or bullet points. Yeah. Or you're like, and hey, I'm going to start something new here, and right. I don't have a transition. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And that you know it's a section break or whatever you have yeah. to do, and then you'll see. Okay. And and sometimes I'll get to the point when I've done all that, I'll be like, okay. You know, I thought that the point of this story was was X, and now that I've put it all together, the reality is it's about Y. Right. And I might even need to go out and do more reporting. Um, that'll the questions that'll come up as you're writing. Um, you know, Wright is obviously a master at his craft, and and he does it you know as well as anybody. Um, the the team that we have, I mean, it's unbelievable. That when we get together in a room and you look at like Wright and Seth Wickersham and Don Van, Nett, I mean, like I can go on, Liz Merrill, on and on and on with the amazing talent that we have. Um, and we, you know, we probably should do a better job of communicating to each other and sharing ideas. Yeah. I think it's weird. Like, you're on a team, but you're also competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that can make it a challenge sometimes. Um, but anyway, like, that's a long-winded answer to, uh, to no, yes. No, no, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, yeah, best practices are super useful for people because sometimes the scariest thing is just where do I begin? Yes. And that's why mentorship is so helpful, but it's really hard to find mentors, too. Yes. Um, I never wanted to do radio. I thought radio was going to be people asking me to list off stats from before I was born. And if I didn't know them and the caller knew I didn't know them, that was it. I just didn't think it was a medium for me. And now I love it. And I do it all the time. And I can talk for four hours at a time, which makes me a good qualified person (laughs) to even just start from there and then then go after that. But um, but I, I wonder... When you're talking best practices and when you're when you're comparing yourself to others, do you find that so often what really makes a great piece isn't just the prep, the structure, the actual writing, but whether or not you found a connection to the person that you were with? Are there are there profiles that you can look at and say, this one really sang because they let me in for whatever reason or I connected with them. And then this one is a good piece, but I can tell that there's a distance between me and the subject. For sure. What, what I try to do at the end of the day is 
I want my subject to look at the piece and say, that's me. They might not like it. It's fair. They might not right. feel that, you know, um, you know, look, like we all look at ourselves in, in the best light possible. And it's probably not the reality of who we all are. And so, you know, that's the best compliment that I can give when somebody says to me, you know, or a spouse or a friend, like, like you got him. Like, you know, the piece I did a couple of years ago on Bodie Miller, you know, Bodie was like, nobody ever writes good profiles of me, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, he just be in his negative way. And, you know, and, and him and his wife said to me, like, you nailed it. Like, that's who I am. That's what you want to hear. And certainly, look, the challenge in this business is everybody has an agenda they're trying to sell. Mm -hmm. All the athletes, you know, they all have handlers. Um, and they want the best story possible, giving you the least amount of access possible. And what I try to say to them is, look, like, you know, to do a story that's going to resonate with people, you have to let me in. It has mm -hmm. to be real. And that just takes time. Um, a lot of times, you know, I will sit there and tell people, here's my story. Like, let's go for a beer and I'll tell you who I am and, and wh where I've come from and what I've gone through. Because you're going to tell me all your deep, dark secrets. It's only right. fair. Um, but more than anything, it's just getting in front of people time and time again and having them see that you're there for the story and not for a soundbite or, you know, a salacious quote or taking something out of context that you really want to tell kind of the whole complete story of, of who they are and what they've gone through. How often are there discussions before you begin about what's off the record or if something happens, you can't write about it or I get to tell you because there's a trust that needs to be earned. But I also imagine if you are with someone and something happens, something is said, something amazing occurs that you happen to be there for that's great stuff you don't want to be in a position where they're able to say you can't use that right so how much of that is negotiated before and how much of that is in the moment or even after you've written it and you send it and you say please let me keep this in so i i don't say anything up front about what is or isn't going to be on the record um if we get in a moment where somebody will say hey you know, I have to have a phone. I have to go on the phone with Jerry Jones, let's say, and I don't want this to be on the record. I'll say, okay. I said, I, you know, I totally get it. That's fine. You know, if somebody, if something happens and somebody says after the fact you can't use that, it sort of depends on its importance in the story. Um, is it a to me? Is it a is it a huge part of who that individual is? At that point, I don't really care. I'm going to probably use it. Mm. Um, if You're like I'm not going to write about you again. <laughs> yeah, like no, I mean for real. And and the flip side is the bridge. <laughs> yeah, and if it's not, then okay, like you right. know, then then if it's I, just embarrassing to them yes. or a salacious yes. piece that's going to end up on TMZ yes. that doesn't do that much, you're willing to let it die. Yes. I did a story, this is an interesting story. I did a story early in my career at ESPN on um and now I can't think of his name. The the guy who played for the Vikings, the professional wrestler who went back and forth and does UFC now. Uh, yeah. Who am, why can't I think of his name? You know what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. right? Like, big pro yep. wrestler guy. Uh, Why can't you remember his name? Because I'm getting old and I don't remember Thank things Thank God as well for I Google. Know. Can you imagine right? if you had to actually... People are, like, yelling at this right now. They're, like... Uh, yeah, they're yelling at the... It's this guy! Yes. How do you not remember? Not the berserker. No, no, no. It's, uh... John Nord? Nope. Th there nope. he is. There he is. There he is. Baba Tuna. Brock Lesnar. Oh. He played for the Vikings? Yes. I didn't even know that. Yes. Briefly. So, so here's the story. So he's, he's doing, like, the pro wrestling thing. He decides to go play for the Vikings, like, in training camp, whatever. Okay. And so I go to do a story on him. And we went to dinner one night in Minnesota. This is a long time ago. And we're in the bar one night, and he basically 
you know, from, from what I remember, essentially, there was a gentleman that came up to him, or a woman that came up to him, a woman, a woman came up to him and said, hey, my friend over here, you know, wants to say hello and like is crazy about you and on and on and on. And he looks over and it's a dude. And he's, and I, I think the guy might have been gay. Right. And he waves. And Brock proceeds to say, like, you know, tell that blank, blank. I'm like, blank, blank. Well, I'm standing here for the whole thing. And so I ended up, you know, including that in my story. Um, And it became a big deal in Minnesota. And, you know, that he said these different things. And and to to his credit, I'll never forget this. He did not say he was misquoted or taken. He could have very easily thrown me under the bus. And he said, you know, basically, like, that's what happened. I made a mistake. I was wrong. Um, so on and so forth. And I wrestled with that story, whether or not to include that anecdote in my piece. Does it have anything to do with him playing right. football? No, but it's who he is. And, and, that's, and that's what I came up with. It's like, look, like, if you're going to go from the pro wrestling world to the NFL world, there's a certain way you're going to need to carry yourself. And obviously, you're not quite ready for that yet. Yeah. And, and I think it was even the lead well, of my story. Well, for him to not recognize that you were there. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that it was right. a flaw in Exactly. So, and I, and I don't remember if, you know, I'm pretty sure that I reached out to him and said I was going to give him a heads up that I was going to include that in the piece. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. But that was an example of being out with somebody and being like, right. oh, my gosh. like Something you know, revealed itself. Yeah. How do you handle this? So Ramona was, was saying... That all she can do, even if she knows a, a story is going to include some negatives, is to be fair and to be honest, and that she does give people a heads up. Yep. Listen, Mike Brown, I'm going to report this story about your players just feeling like you're a mess and, I, and they don't like you. Yep. You're not going to like it, but it's true, and yep. that's the way it is. Um, have you ever had any lengthy back and forths about don't include that? Or or have you had, like, who who, who did you struggle the most getting to be okay with you showing who they are? I've I've never really had a a real an issue with somebody saying no you know don't do this or don't do that, um, you know I I did a story a long long time ago about a University of Pennsylvania football player who uh, who had committed suicide, and he he was depressed and we did this whole piece about basically how he was like the sort of perfect all American guy was in the Wharton Business School had a beautiful girlfriend seemingly everything going for him and nobody knew that he was depressed. And in the story, you know, we were kind of trying to unravel what happened. And his friends are all saying to me, like, you know, we wondered, you know, was it an issue with this? Was it an issue with that? And one of the topics that we brought up um, or came up in conversation was whether or not he might have been gay. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, it was a really, really sensitive issue for the family. And they were like, you know, how, how dare you suggest this could even be a possibility when he's not here to explain himself, like it, it's about as salacious as it gets. Right. And, and I wrestled with that a lot because I was like, well, the flip side is like, what if that is true? And, and he didn't feel comfortable. And it's and a huge part of the story. Exactly. If it were true, but, but, but how do you handle that? Right. And so if I'm not mistaken, you know, the way we did that in the story was, I think there was a paragraph in the piece that kind of talked about, you know, all the different things that were bouncing through his friends' heads as to what it could be. And this was one of the things they wondered right. and like got into it, got out of it. And that was it. Yeah. But I remember like, you know, I still I still keep in touch on Facebook with his mom. She's an amazing lady. And she was, you know, really upset with me um, that we even, you know, were thinking about including that in the piece. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's hard. You know, I, I tell people. I tell students sometimes, like, 
the more uncomfortable you get in a topic with your subject, probably the more interesting, the most interesting yeah, it's going to be. But it's hard to do. Absolutely. And and also I think there's a difference between being empathetic and yet still being able to get the goods and tell it in a way that's interesting and useful to others and eventually that may even be uncomfortable for them, but then they realize later that by being open about whatever it was, they're helping other people, they're opening themselves, they're healing, whatever it is, whatever the topic is. Um, but I have trouble being the person who shares that with others if it's the first time. Like if it's – like I – you're not really in the in the business of breaking news in terms right. of like you didn't write to, to tell everybody that that Michael Phelps got a DUI right. or went to rehab right, right? Um, those things would challenge me the idea that I'm the cause of somebody else's pain that yep. something got out there yep. how do you reconcile telling the story and sometimes including things that are hard for others to read or that will make them judge the person even if that's who they are with the idea that it's important to get the story out I mean I think that's that's the essence of, of who we all are as people, that everybody has their flaws, you know, that, um, you know, that was, you know, with, with Michael Phelps, that was the problem for so long is that he was projected as perfect. He was packaged and sold as perfect. And that's not real. Um, and so I think, you know, they were very, very concerned all throughout his career about how people would see this and see that and what if they knew and on and on and on. And the reality is once he opened up and admitted to, who he was, what he had struggled with, how he had gotten there, how he had worked his way through it, he became a human being. He wasn't a robot. And every single one of us in our lives can relate to having bad days and good days and problems and dealing with them. Um, you know, Tiger Woods is the same way. I mean, it made him more human. And I think too often they try to, they try to package these athletes as things that they aren't. And so that, you know, with, with Michael, it, it took a lot, a lot of trust. I mean, you know, I, we, we, I was talking to him about doing that story for almost a year. And then all of a sudden, I remember that spring, he went and did the story with SI. And I was livid. I mean, I, I flew to Minneapolis where he was having a, a swim meet. And after the, after the day he swum, we stood in the hallway. And I was like, dude, like, what the heck, man? Like, no heads up, nothing. We've been talking about doing this piece. And I'm like, if you don't want to do it, just tell me you don't want to do it. And, like, I mean, I, I was, like, yelling at him. I was yeah. ticked. And he's like, no, man. He's like, I, want, I still want to do it. And da, 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 and like, we'll work together and all this and that. And I was like, okay. And, and as it turned out, I mean, the story was, was better the further we went along. And you had, you know, the birth of his son and things like that. But, but you know, being able to talk to his father, being able to understand the tension and the, and the you know, the fight in that relationship. Um, Michael opening up about what he went through in rehab. Um, that's all real. Right. And, I, and I'm of the mindset. I believe that we you know, love our athletes more when they're humans and not just like sport robots. Yeah, for sure. That's another part of your job that I think is intriguing and different. I've always been um, the, the, the person with the crazy motor. And if I'm not doing enough, I feel like I'm slacking, even if I'm doing more than I should and it adds, like burns me out. Your job is such a long haul, right? You don't show up at a radio studio, do four hours, and then go home and then do it again the next day. It's, it's so much work behind the scenes before the product comes out. Um, do you ever worry or balance, like, am I working enough? Am I working too little? How long do I have to do this? If I ask for more time, are they going to be like, You're, this is a lot of money and time for one piece? Because like, when we read the stories, it's beyond worth it. 
but the amount of time. Right. And then the babies that you have to, like, the, the great sentences and paragraphs and things that you leave behind that never make it. Yeah. That's hard. What, uh, what's funny is, what, you know, yes, to, to answer your question, yes. And it took me a long time, you know, I would say maybe even almost a decade to get comfortable with the ebb and flow of this job where there's times where I'm insanely busy and I'm, you know, flying here, flying there, doing whatever. And there's other times where I'm, you know, between stories or whatever. And, you know, uh, I have more free time and I'm wondering like, what should I do? Right? Like, Oh my gosh, we're having like, you know, firings at ESPN. I probably should write something great pretty soon and on and on and on. And so what's funny is when somebody new comes to our team and starts working with us, every single one of them, goes through that process, and I tell them, like, it's all good. Like, relax, okay? Like, you have time to do great things, and they understand that in between stories, you know, uh, you might have downtime. You might – there's no – you know, it's like a roller coaster. I can have five things going on at once, and my life is total chaos. And then those five things are done, and there could be three weeks or two weeks where I'm just reading and making phone calls and getting an idea of what I want to do next. Exactly. Um, that's just the way it is. It, 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 but it does, it does take time to get used to that and to understand that and, and sort of be okay with it. How many editors have you had in 17 years? <sighs> wow. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know, right? So, like, I have, like, an editor that is sort of my gatekeeper, and his job is when other editors go to him, can we use Wayne for this or that? He's the one who says yes or no or he's busy or not. And then I get sort of farmed out, if you will, on each individual story. So, I mean, truthfully, I mean, over the years, the number of editors I've worked with on a story has to be at least 40 or 50. It has to be. Yeah. Um, some better than others. And how does, does it change the story much, depending on who's on it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some editors who will really, really, who really, you know, push you and uh, are very involved and, and want to see great things. Other editors who are totally hands-off and, um, you know, and they'll just sort of take what you send in and, and, and tweak it and make it better or, or talk about it. What's interesting is, you know, depending on the story, both of those methods work. There's some stories where you need to be pushed, and there's some stories where, like, you got it, and, and you don't need somebody, you know, in your ear all the time. And a good editor, I think you know, knows the difference and knows just like a good coach, right? Like when to push the buttons and when to, and when to lay back. So we mentioned, uh, feeling like you needed to get the story out and that's what people need, but that it sometimes is hard. And I know after the catching hell documentary, I ran into you outside of, I think the screening that I went to and talked about the part in the movie where you you talk about going to the parking garage and finding him and confronting him or whatever. This is the Steve Bartman story, um, and that it still kind of bothered you. Yeah. So why does that one stand out to you, and and does, do you still kind of feel like that was it still one of your tougher me. assignment? Yeah, it still bothers me. I mean, you know, when he when he put out his statement last week after getting the ring, and there was a line in there about you know media respecting his privacy and all that. I'm like, I know exactly who he's talking about. Mm. And what entity he's talking about? Well, it's probably a lot of them, but yeah, but yeah, absolutely yeah. at the front of the list. Yeah, um, and I get that. I mean, I understand why he and his family felt the way they did. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but I understand it. Um, look, like I mean, I said this in the movie. It's you know, I don't, I don't blame him for what he did. I think it's something that we all pretty much would have done. I don't know if I would have reacted the same way, but 
you know, it, I felt bad because I, I could easily see that being me in that seat or any yeah. one of us. And I hated that assignment, you know, for that reason. I mean, talk about needing my buttons pushed. You know, my editor, I mean, I was living in Connecticut at the time, and he was like, you know, you know, suck it up and go, man. Like, go do your thing. Like, you need to go and find him. This is your assignment, on and on and on. And he had chosen me for that assignment knowing I was a Cub fan and knowing that it would tear me up inside. And because yeah. of that, I would handle it with care, right? He basically took advantage of my, you know, feelings for the team and, and in a way for Steve um, and, and being the one to do that story. And, you know, the funny thing about that piece is, you know, I, had, I went to Wimbledon that summer after I reported it, and I wrote it when I was at Wimbledon and turned it in. And it was, it's probably the only time in, in the 17 years at ESPN that I had a story sent back to me, and I was, I was told it was garbage. Really? Yes. And he said to me, he's like, this is crap. Like, you need to rewrite the whole thing. And I remember coming back, and, and I kind of like had, you know, I, I was beating around the bush in the piece. I mean, he was right. It wasn't good. And I came. Because you were taking too much care. Yes. I wasn't writing with the passion and the emotion that I had felt and experienced. You were trying to I was to writing, him. yes, trying not to upset him and this and that. And so I went back to my hotel after, after covering Wimbledon one night. I sat in my bed, and it's the only time that I sat down and I wrote that entire story in like two hours. And the I was. Only one. Yeah. I mean, usually it takes days and days and yeah. days. And so I just sat down. I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to write exactly what I felt, exactly what happened, and whatever happens, happens. And, you know, I, I wrote the piece and sent it in, and he was like, it's awesome. He's like, right. it's, it's great. And then I remember, you know, back then, you know, we didn't have social media. And so the way people would reach out to writers was through email. And I got, I mean, thousands of emails when that story ran. And I sat and, w- and read every single one of them. And some people I replied to, some people I didn't. Um, but it was, you know, it was emotional. I remember my wife being like, why are you doing this? Why are you putting yourself through this? And I'm like, well, somebody takes the time to write. I want to, you know, s- you know, see what they say. And I'll tell you, the, the, the tone of the emails ran the gamut from, um, you know, on one, on one end, this is the most amazing piece of journalism I've ever written. Your writing reminds me of, you know, Hemingway, whatever. <laughs> To the other, you know, end of the gamut, you know, you're a total scumbag, and I hope your children are born with defects. Right. And, uh, you know, you don't live to see another day type thing. I mean, it was it was, it was right. that, you know, spread across the globe. Um, and so, you know, that was hard. I mean, I remember, I remember just sitting there and email after email, reading them and reading them and reading them, and it was just like, it was painful. It was hard. For those who don't know, obviously, it was a profile about Steve Bartman but part of what bothered you about it was that he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to talk to anybody. And part of getting to him to tell the story was that you literally had to, like, camp out in the parking Stock. garage of his office. And I started the day outside his house. You know, I knew what his address was, and I sat in a car, a rental car, outside his house early one morning waiting for him to come out, basically. Um, and then, you know, eventually he came out, and... It was pretty quick, and I remember, like, I was, like, down the street, and I followed him to his office. I knew where he worked, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, I lost him in the parking lot, or I lost him on the way to work, something like that on the road, and I called my editor. I'm like, well, you know, I lost him, so, you know, we're, like, we're good, and he was like, no. He's like, you need to go back there, find his car in the parking lot, and sit there tonight until he comes out, and so that's what I did, and I mean, I sat there. It was a Friday night, and I remember he didn't come out until, like, 7 o'clock. I mean, and every time I said this in the movie, every time the door opened, I would, my, my heart would skip a beat, like, is this going to be him? And by the end of the night, there were, like, I don't know, four or five cars, you know, in the parking lot. Everybody had left, um, and it was him. And so, uh, you know, and, and, and while I'm sitting there, I'm calling people in Bristol, like, I'm calling friends, just people to kind of, like, 
I don't know, keep kicking me in the butt and encouraging yeah. me to do this if you will, cause I didn't want to do it. Um, and so, yeah, and so then I went up to him and, you know, I introduced myself and I you know, handed him a business card and I basically said, like, you know, I'd like to talk to you about scheduling an interview. And he said to me, he said, uh, it's not always the best idea to jump out of a car in a parking lot to ask for an interview. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, obviously, I get it. Um, you know, there was a colleague of mine at the time who had been working through the proper channels to get an, e- to get an interview with Steve Bartman. And there was some talk about whether or not we should take this approach and would it ruin what he potentially had going. And, you know, my editor made the call, you go do your thing. He's had X amount of months or whatever to get this. He's not getting it. Well, after that all happened, I mean, obviously the interview blew up and, and that guy was, you know, furious with me for a while. Um, and, you know, and, and, and then, you know, getting back to Steve, it was just like, what I remember is him, you know, he didn't look the way, obviously he wasn't wearing like a Renegades baseball sweatshirt right. and, and a headset and a Cubs cap. Yeah. But I remember thinking that if I didn't know, if I wasn't looking for him and I didn't know that was his car, that I wouldn't recognize it. Right. Um, he looked like any, you know, whatever, 20 something, whatever he was back then who would come out of work in like khakis and a polo, you know, in like 2004, whatever year it was. So, uh you know, and then I remember the last thing he said to me, uh, he said, uh, you know, you know, basically, thanks. My legal team will get get back to you. And I was like, OK. And then I and then, I, you know, it's funny. I, I still to this day will will get an email. I don't know. Every other month. Was there a follow up story with Steve's legal team? getting did he, yeah. did you, Like, no, no, I'm no, sorry. There's no not. interview. Like, yeah. And, and, and everything I've ever heard through back channels and all this was that, you know, they were furious with the piece. We invited. Uh, Steve to come out to the Tribeca Film Festival when we debuted Catching Hell. And, uh, you know, the director, Alex Gibney, told me that they basically said anything involved with Wayne we're not going to be a part of. Hmm. Even though the film is incredibly sympathetic. But also, they haven't been involved with anything with no, anyone. No, So that might right. have been an ability to get a dig at you because they wanted you to know specifically. Yeah. But they also haven't. Right. So what did you make of him finally making a statement? When I first saw it run on WGN, I literally thought to myself, oh, it's fake. It's, like, going to be funny. And I was like, oh, he actually made a statement. Like, yeah. it's been so long. We yeah. finally hear from him. Yep. What did you make of the statement, and what did you make of the just general idea of this sort of being the closure for the team and maybe him? I thought it was, I thought it was great. I thought his statement was uh, incredibly profound. He talks about how we treat people. Um, and the idea of scapegoating, I, I think he's right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, look, here we are 14 years later, and I think most everybody in the city of Chicago feels crappy for the way they reacted that night. And I don't know a single person who actually no, blames him for anything. No, yet. and anybody who does is a, is a Neanderthal who, you know, is, is, in, the, is in the great minority. Um, so I would like to think that, you know, maybe we've all kind of learned our lesson in a way. You know, to me, the, the, the thing with Steve was, you know, him and his family always felt like it could have been anybody. It wasn't a story. And everybody should have just left him alone. And that's just simply not the truth. Just because you didn't intend to get in the way doesn't mean that you weren't part of the story. And look, Moises Alou's reaction, all of that contributed to this. Um, but him sort of, you know going undercover, you know, hiding, if you will, made it this mysterious, weird thing. And that's why, you know, people like me and editors, like my editors, like, what a great story to go find that, right? Like, if he comes out and, you know, goes to Oprah, you know, the next day or, like, does a silly commercial or, 
You know, the guy who sat next to him, Pat Looney. Yeah. I did a story a couple years later on the guy who could have been Bartman. Pat, Chicago fireman. He's like, dude, yeah. he's like, he's like, I would have taken a bow that night. And right. like, like, you know, like it would have been handled differently. Um, but it's hard because you can't begrudge him the silence either because no. in some ways – Everybody's trying to get 15 minutes of fame. He intentionally didn't. Yes. He never took any money. He just wanted to be left yes. alone. So the fact that the story continued on so long because he made what was kind of a noble choice is right. such a cruel twist. It is. And, and look, by if he would have done an interview or done done something, that in many ways validates the idea that he was part of this, right? right. Like by never doing anything, they can say like, well, we don't see what the big deal is. Like everybody needs to move on. Yeah, so you can't. A lot I, of people felt like they couldn't move on, I get which is that. not fair to And them, I but. think the ring thing is perfect. You know, the, the only thing that I sort of, I wouldn't say question, but, you know, to me, I don't know why it had to be public. For somebody who's so private and... and uh, I would imagine it's because both the team... I think the team thinks it's best for everyone for there to be public closure. Right, right, certainly. If he's not going to show up and do a first pitch or a parade right. or a World Series yep. or anything, yep. the curse is over. There was never a curse. Yep. But if you are someone dumb enough to believe in curses, yep. then the curse is over. Stop bringing it up every yep. time you come to Wrigley. Stop anytime there's a foul ball there, bringing yep. it up. Stop using him in a montage with a cat. Just leave him alone. Right. And if that requires not only winning the World Series but also saying, we as a team are giving you this – and then he makes a statement. Yep. That should That's be it. it. Yep. You're right. You're you right. Know? That's a great point. If you do it under the table, it's it's not the same right. closure. Right. And it right. may never be the closure people want. Yep. I think people who want him to talk, they'll want that for themselves, not exactly. for him. Exactly. 100%. And they, you know, this idea of him coming in, like throwing out a first pitch, and like, it's just, it's just, it's not it's for just, him. Yes. He's never wanted to be yes. out in public. Exactly. Why would he want to do that? Exactly. So, well, speaking of the Cubs, uh, you delayed heart surgery until after the World Series. I did. That is fascinating. Yes. Um, it worked out well. You're in great health. Yes. Um, was there, and I know this was in your story, but for those who didn't follow along, did the doctors wonder if watching a World Series was not the best op- thing, you know, activity for a, a weak heart? Uh, they didn't. I mean, they, w- when they told me that I had this condition, what I had was basically uh, an aneurysm in my aorta. So my aorta in a certain spot had thinned and it kind of ballooned and was threatening it was going to rupture. If it ruptured, uh, like, that's it. Like, that's what happened to Alan Thicke and, you know, John Ritter and a lot of other people. So the concern is the longer you wait, the higher percentage of it rupturing. And so when I knew I needed the procedure, you know, um, and, and I think it was at some point in early October when they were like, look, like, sooner rather than later. I got a, rant, I got a phone call from a Cleveland clinic. You need to come sooner rather than later. And, you know, meanwhile, the Cubs are having this, like, amazing season mm-hmm. and waited my whole life for this. And so literally I, I like, Googled, like, whatever, MLB playoff schedule. I saw if the World Series went to Game 7, it would be this day. And I said the following Monday is when I want to go. And so I – and obviously at that point, I don't even know if the playoffs had started. I don't right. think they had. And so I called, you know, like the – whatever, the nurse scheduler or whatever, and I said, hey, look, I'm like, if I want to wait till this day, you know, is that okay? And – um and she, and she was like, look, she's like, we're not going to – she's like, I'm not going to tell you no. She's like, you know, every day that you wait is, 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 is the risk of something happening. The percentage is like 5%. You right. know, it's a low percentage, but it is still a percentage. And so I said, okay. I said, well, that, you know, that was worth it for me. The, the, the bigger issue I had was, you know, once I knew I had this sort of ticking time bomb inside of me, my anxiety was off the charts. I bet. And so I was like uneasy and like didn't always feel great. And so when you factored that into watching that team and what <laughs> happened in the World Series, like, yeah, it's crazy. I remember distinctly 
you know, that the Sunday after the World Series, they think they won on a Wednesday, right? The parade was Friday. That Sunday, I flew to Cleveland for the surgery. Surgery was Monday morning. And I remember when the plane touched down in Cleveland, like this huge sense of relief. Yeah. Where like, like, I made look, it. They yes, won. Yes. I'm taking care of things. And then, I mean, the fact that like the surgery's in Cleveland, like yeah. I, mean, I remember sitting, we, we were there for, you know, pre-op testing during games one and two. We went to game one and we're sitting, you know, the, the irony is we, we scalped our tickets. This is going to blow your mind. We scalped our tickets. We sit down at, at the Jake. To our left is Cap and Hollinsworth. Uh-huh. And to our right was uh, Carmen, Waddle. Yeah. And it was like, how in the world did we end up in the exact we, spot? Like, like, I did not scalp these from like the station. It was some random You might dude. have. <laughs> might have, right? You might have gotten <laughs> Who from, knew? from somewhere to you Seriously. with a couple stops in the middle. But we're sitting there and like it was so surreal you know, that like, obviously the Cleveland Clinic's a huge sponsor there. So everywhere you turn around, right. it's like, it's just, it was, I'm like the Cubs in the World Series and I'm going to have my chest ripped open in yeah. a week. And, and they're sponsoring crazy. this event. Yeah. So is it, a, is it, I mean, obviously it's not like uh, fake that stress or whatever can cause heart issues. People have heart attacks in yep. moments of great fear or yep. surprise or whatever, but they did not consider this something that would be negatively influenced by stress or no. overexcitement or... No, I mean, the only the only issue that, that I had was essentially they wanted to kind of control the flow of my blood through that area. So I was basically on like blood pressure medicine. I didn't need it. I don't have high blood pressure, but that's how they were kind of controlling that yeah. um, and keeping me relatively, you know, as calm as possible. Um... But, yeah, I mean, and you know what's funny, too, is, like, that World Series, that whole playoffs, I was, like, an enormous optimist. Like, we're good, mm-hmm. we're good. When they went down 3-1, I, 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 I was like, that's it. Like, you know, screw these guys. Like, I can't believe they blew this. Like, yeah. I was done, finished. And so those other games, when they came back, not until probably, like, game six did that, like, kind of, did it come back where you thought they might actually win? Right. Um, and that was obviously a cakewalk of a game. Um, and then game seven, I mean, even that, the beginning was easy, and you're like, this is, it was a big party where it's all good. Yeah. Oh, my God, it's going to happen. And then, you know, Rajai Davis, which you're like, really? Yeah. Like, yeah. I could find ten guys in this building right now who hit the ball better yeah. than him. He in that moment, and, like, I literally, in my head, I was like, of everything the team has ever been through, this will be the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the stadium, and I'm the fan that's going to be a part of uh-huh. of the losingest team ever, having its worst moment ever uh-huh. is going to be me uh-huh. watching it like just so sad. Uh-huh. And I was like, "How is this happening? Uh-huh. Like we just we're, we're yeah." It was that game was absolutely insane. I remember the rain delay being frustrated because I just wanted I just wanted an outcome. I didn't want to wait. I didn't want like a two-hour rain delay, and all of a sudden it's one o'clock in the morning. I mean, I'm pulling my phone out and looking at the radar in Cleveland, yeah. and I'm just like, like whatever the outcome is, I can't deal with this. Can we yeah. just figure, like either Imagine give them if a it run? Had not like if it Holy kept raining cow. and they'd do it the next day. Yeah, I know, oh. I know. Like, like I couldn't, I couldn't that entire day. I mean, I cleaned the whole house. I took out the garbage. It wasn't even the garbage day. And my wife comes home and works. She's like, "Why take the garbage out?" I'm like, yeah. "Well, it's you know, it's Thursday." She's like, "No, it's Wednesday." I'm like, oh. "I mean, I was just, <laughs> I was, I couldn't believe yeah. that that night." The Cubs are going to play for a chance to win the World Series. It was it was crazy. You know, I'm getting sick thinking of it because I'm just remem- remembering like how nervous I was <sighs> just sitting in the. We had a suite for all the Cleveland games that our uh-huh. friend had hooked up before it even started. Uh-huh. If they were to go on to get to play there, and I did not leave my seat for the last four innings 
and I didn't eat anything. I didn't drink anything. I didn't move. I was so upset. Right. Amy Schumer was in the suite next door. I snuck over to try to say hi, and then they gave up a run, and I was like, I'm back. I can't focus on it. I let down my team. I don't even believe in that shit. I just was like, right, I let them right. down. Focus on the game. Nothing else. You can right. meet Amy Schumer some other time. Right. And then I just sat there with, like, just freaking out, mm-hmm. like, palpitations. And then afterwards, it was just yeah. just the best. And everything else that came after the parade and everything yeah. was, like, surreal. Um, but I cannot imagine doing that while also anticipating heart surgery. Yeah. And knowing I, you're a, that's a fan, fanatic. That's yep. a fanatic. And I don't know how your family accepted your decision. Everything. My wife knows. She gets it. It all worked out. You know, it worked out. And, you know, it was funny. I, uh, I had no trouble wearing my Cubs gear in the hospital. Um, and, you know, like people in Cleveland, are, they were super nice. And they were yeah. like, you know, they'd give me a hard time. But they got all it. All people to lose to. Yeah. It was funny. You know, the morning, the morning of surgery you know, they, 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 you know, I say goodbye to my family and they wheel me in this elevator and back hallway. And I remember, um, waiting outside the operating room and I was stone sober. So they hadn't given me any medicine, right. anything yet. And I was in operating room. I remember thinking that I was an operating room 75. Cause I thought of Kyle long and I was like, Oh my God, there's 75 operating rooms here. Like, yeah. Holy cow. And then, you know, they wheel me in and it's just like space age, like, you know, operating room. It's crazy. And I get on the table and this and that, and uh, the surgeon walks in, and he's this, like, world-renowned. This is what he does. He did the same operation on Jeff Green Mm -hmm. uh, in the NBA. And he comes over, and he says to me, he's South African, and he says in his accent, he goes, uh, I read your story. Because, you know, I've written about this this, this World Series thing. He goes, I read your story. He's like, it was very good. He's like, good job. Have a nice sleep. And, and like, literally, then they, like, knock me out. And and I remember, you know, I remember waking up in in recovery, basically, in the intensive care. And I woke up, and I thought I was dead. And I woke up, and my wife and my best friend from childhood were standing there at the end of the table. And in my mind, again, like, I'm totally out of it. But in my yeah. mind, I'm thinking something went wrong. Uh, I'm not going to make it. And they brought these people in to say goodbye. And so I'm like, hey, like, like, kind of like, I mean, again, like yeah. out of it, I got a, a, a tube down my throat and all this. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, man, you know. And I remember, you know, my friend, he looked at me and he said, hey, he goes, Cubs don't, won the World Series. Don't forget the Cubs <laughs> won the World Series. And I gave him a thumbs yeah. up. And, uh, and he knew I was going to be okay from yeah. that point on. And it was What's great. What's crazy, too, is how many people have been like, if the Cubs win the World Series, I'll die happy. Right? And then you literally are getting wheeled in yeah. for a potentially yeah. deadly yeah, surgery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're probably thinking to yourself, I should never have said if the Cubs win the right. World Series. Like, it's worth it. I have made a deal with yep. the devil. Yep. And everything is about to come true yep. exactly, as I have, exactly as I have said. Um, I could talk to you forever, but uh, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does. Okay. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right, the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects it. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with? Oh, I wish I could fly. Mm. Yeah, I wish I, I love like airplanes. I wish I could fly. Have you ever like paraglided or skydived? No. Or? When I was like six, I would stand on top of the air conditioner and jump off and try to fly, and it failed every time. <laughs> wow, shocking. Yeah. Two, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Oh, man. I know. It's the worst question ever. I'm so glad that I don't have to. I'll tell you what. Right now, like right now, I am crazy excited out of my mind about this uh, Greta Van Fleet. Mm. 
Have you heard of it? Mm-mm. You have to check it out. So it's basically like these like 18 and 19-year-old kids that sound just like Zeppelin. Oh. Somebody introduced it to me a couple weeks ago, and I cannot stop playing it. Um, that might get old on an island after yeah. a couple weeks, but right now, like that's Definitely all I want to listen to. All right, yeah. Greta Van Fleet. I'll have to yeah. check it out. Yeah. If you could switch lives with someone for a day, who would it be? Ooh. Uh, boy. Hmm. I would say... You know, like like twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, I would have said Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, that's tough. I could switch. <sighs> In my mind, I'm like, can I just go be the president for a day and yeah, fix all the things that are being messed up? Uh, a day, but it would help. <laughs> I don't know how much you could do in a day, but <laughs> yeah, but I could help. <laughs> like maybe change the codes or yeah, something. Exactly. <laughs> Change all the passwords. That's that's tough. That's really really tough. I, I would. I mean, I would want to be. You know. You know what I would say. And I, I just did the story, so it's fresh in my mind. I I wouldn't mind being Lewis Hamilton for a day. All right. To be able to fly around in a race car and like live like the rock star race yeah. car driver life. Yeah. Knowing that I could come back to like normalcy, normalcy afterwards. Yeah. 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 That would be pretty amazing. It's fascinating to me that I don't. I think there's maybe been one person that I've ever asked that question that's named someone of the opposite sex. And that's fascinating to me that it doesn't even occur to people and that I think it would be fascinating to be someone amazing right. and famous and cool and successful but also the opposite sex just to see what it's so like. So like, I could be like Giselle for a yeah, day? Yeah, Beyonce or right. Michelle Obama or whatever it is. Like, It's just interesting that that doesn't occur to people. Right. And I'm always like, does your brain work differently? Who would yours be? Are you really horny every second of the day or is that just like a thing <laughs> that men say because they're annoying and insufferable? You would um, be in the man's body for about 20 minutes like, oh, my God, this is the I worst. Know. It was, I would be like, oh, God, the privilege. It's too much. And the flip side is every guy would be like, oh, my God, everywhere I go, people are staring yeah. at me. This is so uncomfortable. Exactly. That's why I think I don't, I'm surprised that people don't think, oh, that would be such a fascinating experience. Uh, number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, the most scared I have ever been is, boy, that's... That's tough. Um, you know, I think the, the the easy answer would be my surgery, but I really wasn't scared. I'm trying to think of moments. You know, I, I would probably say, like, pick a random flight that I've been on when you're, where you're rocking and rolling in some bad thunderstorms and jumping around. I've had a few of those. Um, I love the fly. It doesn't bother me. But when you're in bad weather, and yeah, I mean, we, I was in a plane once hit by lightning. Uh, and that wasn't terribly yeah, fun. And scary. and I remember the the pilot came on and said, uh, you know, our apologies for that uh, brief electrical discharge. And I was like, we call that lightning, sir. You knew like, for sure. Oh yeah. And I mean, I don't know if it was true, but it felt like it was like right under my seat. I mean, like it flashed. <laughs> and you're like, um, it's just taking off, taking off from here from O'Hare. But but yeah, I would say like some of those those yeah. flights yeah. are not always fun. What would you consider your biggest failure? Ooh. Um, you know, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, if you, if, if, if you want, if, if you want to go super deep, you know, for me, um, you know, both my parents passed away, uh, not too long ago. And, you know, my dad died in 2001 and my mom died in 2012. And, it, to this day, bothers me that I wasn't. My mom had a really hard time when my dad passed away, mm-hmm. and you know one of my sort of biggest failures that I feel is not 
helping her more through that process to keep her around here longer, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, people are like, wow, it got really deep there. No, but yeah, but that, I mean, that's probably from a sports perspective, it it still, like I said, bugs out of me that I stopped playing baseball. Right. That bugs out of me. Yeah. Number five, what, or six, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Um, fear of failure. No question that, yeah, I think, you know, I, I am motivated by this idea that, um, I'm kind of a fraud, and one day they're going to figure yep. it out and Imposter make me leave. Syndrome. Yes. Yep. Like, a lot of us have They're that. going to get the phone call like, well, Wayne, as it turns out, after 17 years, you can't do this. Yeah, you actually suck. Uh-huh. I don't know how it took us so long to figure yes. that out. So, uh, so, but still, I mean, to this day, that's, that's very much what motivates yeah. me. And I also think, too, like, you know, when I go on these stories and ESPN is spending thousands mm-hmm. of dollars to send me places, I damn well better come back with something Absolutely. good. Absolutely. So, I think about that a lot. The first time I got sent anywhere and sent in expenses, I was like, oh, yeah. they're never going to do that again. Yeah. That was too expensive for me. And then I'm like, they keep doing it. Uh-huh. This is weird. Don't ask any questions. Uh-huh. Just keep working. Um, seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? I'd like to be less judgmental. Mm-hmm. I think we could all be that way. Um, I have a hard time with uh, just being judgmental, like, yeah. like, you know, being warmer to people. You know, I, I try to make a point to be warm and friendly and kind and caring with everyone. But people that don't reciprocate or aren't that way or or are cold in a way, I respond the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'd like to be less judgmental and I'm going to add a a 1B, um, care less what people think. And I don't even mean as a journalist. I just mean as a human being. Like go be you. You know, I tell my girls that all the time. Go be you and and who cares? People like you or don't like you or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, the judgmental thing is an interesting one, too. That's something I want to work on. But I'm simultaneously judgmental and incredibly empathetic, and I have no idea how I do those at the same time. <laughs> That's like an internal deep, struggle. Like a deep-rooted empathy where I cry over, like, right. commercials. Right. Or I, like, like, I cry over, like, a Garfield cartoon. Or, like, <laughs> I cry over, like, I can't watch the news. Like, I'm, right. I, I feel sorry for everybody. Right. I can't do certain things because I'm, like, constantly thinking of how other people will feel if it happens. And then at the same time, I'm super judgmental about some stuff. Right. And I'm not really sure how that goes. <laughs> like, like, I'm sarcastic and, like, you know, you yeah. see somebody in the street and they're dressed weird or whatever. And I'll make a comment to my friends. I'm like, why do I care? Like, yeah. who cares? Yeah, I'm better at that. I'll be like, do you? Who cares? Yeah. Who cares? But I'm, I like, when people make terrible choices. Yes. That's when I'm judgmental. Yes. But I don't have the empathy of, like, maybe everything in their life that led up to now is a big reason why they made that bad choice. Right. And I don't know anything right. about it. And my life's been easier. And... I have trouble with that. Mm-hmm. But, and finally, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Oh, man. Um, I would say three words. I would like people to think that I'm um, warm. Um, caring. And... Boy, warm, caring, and um, passionate. Mm. Passionate about what I do and how I yeah. live my life. Yeah, passionate's good because it works for everything too. Yeah, passionate for your family yep. and totally. life and totally. work and yep. Warm and caring are a little redundant, but if it's really important to you, you can have both. <laughs> how about fast? You better be achieving. I'm not you fast, but I would love someone it. to think I'm fast. Yeah, somebody said <laughs> super hot. Like, <laughs> uh, thank you. You're welcome. I got a question for you. Yeah. How did I do compared to the Cards of Humanity guy? 
Totally different, but amazing. Okay, good. I just want to make sure. Totally different topics. Uh huh. Totally different questions. All right. Equally as interesting. See, I had a fear of failing this podcast. There you go, exactly. (laughs) That's what she said.